Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Saturday, January 11, 2020, is a President Bill Clinton lecture in American history. In this talk, experts David W. Blight, Edna Green Medford, and Harold Holzer discuss how Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln contributed to the cause of Black freedom. So, to set the stage, 157 years and 11 days ago, um, Abraham Lincoln signed perhaps the most consequential executive order in presidential history, in American history, the Emancipation Proclamation. A milestone, to be sure, a great achievement without question, Uh, so much so that Lincoln himself realized, as he said, if my name ever goes into history, it will be for this act. Um, As we later learned, that's why on January 1st, 1863, he refused to sign the first document set before him for his approval because it contained what we would later refer to as a typo, a hand-done typo, simply in the boilerplate language at the bottom. And he insisted that it be re-engrossed. That was the word for the fancy writing that professional calligraphers did in those days. And so he delayed further um, while people in churches around the North waited anxiously, wondering what was going on. Why hasn't the midnight hour yielded freedom? Lincoln just waited. And then when he got before the document, uh, pen in hand, he put his pen down, his hand numbed by hours of New Year's Day handshaking at a series of receptions downstairs in the public rooms of the White House. And, And while Secretary of State Seward and Seward's son and Lincoln's staff wondered whether this meant he was changing his mind, he finally acknowledged that it was only because his hand was so uh, paralyzed, as he put it, that he was afraid he would sign it shakily. He said, I want people to look at this document in 100 years and see a firm handwriting and say he did not hesitate. Um, As it happened, the document is so faded, no one can really tell that official document. But... uh, So today we want to talk about that moment and things that led up to it and things that occurred afterward with uh, one of the great characters that played a role that Edna and David have helped us recognize over the last 10 years and particularly with David's magisterial biography of Douglas has brought to the center and that is Frederick Douglas. And I want to shower you with dual images of these extraordinary and extraordinary looking people uh, as we proceed. And, And here they are in the 1840s. People have a tendency to think of Lincoln as a bearded, uh, avuncular statesman and Frederick Douglass as an old man. He wasn't always an old man and Lincoln didn't always have a beard. They were remarkable looking young men. And I want to start with that, um, with the origins Um, Douglas once said memorably that Lincoln never treated him as an inferior, and he believed that even though he came from a slave state, 
that was because they both rose from humble origins and, and, worked, and worked hard. Um, Douglas called Lincoln the king of American self-made men, as David writes in, in his book. Um, tell us about the different origins and how you think it may have contributed to the relationship that they ultimately developed. Well, we can certainly first start with slavery. And so Douglas was someone who was born into slavery uh, on the eastern shore of Maryland. Uh, did not know his mother very well. His mother died when he was about six or seven years old. And he lived with his grandmother even before that. So by the time he learned that his mother was dead, uh, she had been dead for some time. And so he, he had not had the opportunity to establish a relationship with her the way uh, a parent and child would. So his, his earliest years, up until he was 20, those years were shaped by his experiences under slavery. And as slavery went during that period, Douglas was better off, I would suspect, than the average enslaved person for a few years, at least. He had the opportunity to experience freedom in Baltimore. Uh, in a setting that was very different from a plantation setting uh, in rural Maryland, I uh, had the opportunity to learn uh, to read and write beginning during that period. And so, yes, he had very humble beginnings. Um, David, I will leave it to you to talk about Keep going. Lincoln's humble beginnings. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> but, uh, well, well, first of all, Louise, thank you, and all this magnificent staff of the New York Historical, and all of you crazy people who came out this early on a Saturday. <laughs> um, it's always an honor to be on anything with Edna. We go back to, I don't know how many years ago. Many, many. Many, uh, <laughs> sitting on the front lawn of Cedar Hill and yes. chairs for C-SPAN or somebody. It was C-SPAN. Was yes. it? And Harold, I mean, uh, do you know how daunting it is to sit across from Harold with that stack of note cards? <laughs> <laughs> he always has 112 note cards. In the actually, tw uh, most of them are blank. I just use them to intimidate you. Oh, I <laughs> All right. Well, then I... That's even... That's vicious. <laughs> no. Uh, but, you know, Harold knows everything about Lincoln, even the things... He even knows facts that don't exist about Lincoln. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yeah, I mean, they do both have humble origins. That's actually one of the interesting ways to think about their later evolving relationship. I think some of the mutual respect that they did have, even from the very first meeting, is due to that. I mean, he, and then Douglas later calls Lincoln in the Freedman's Memorial speech uh, the, plebe the plebeian which is an interesting choice of words. Uh, no one ever called Douglas a plebeian. You don't need to call a slave a plebeian. Um, but Edna, Edna really nailed it there. Douglas's youth is privileged to a degree because of being sent to Baltimore. He spends nine of his 20 years as a slave in the city of Baltimore. Without Baltimore, we wouldn't know him. He would never have escaped without that experience in an urban slave society that was actually dominated by the free black community of Baltimore. There were 17,000 free blacks in Baltimore in 1838 when he escapes. There are about 3,000 slaves. 
So he mingles among, he learns from, he attends churches in, he gets involved in a debating society as a slave teenager. He meets Anna Murray, his then first wife, who was free, um, worked as a domestic in a white person's home. Um, on the other hand, he also experienced just about every kind of savagery that he ex either experienced or witnessed about every kind of savagery that slavery could wreck upon people, from the daily humiliations to physical brutal treatment. He's not beaten himself, so far as we can tell, until he was a teenager by his own owner, Thomas Old, and then by uh, an overseer named Covey and a few other times. Uh, but he knew slavery inside and out. He knew its mental humiliations. He knew its psychic traumas. He knew its physical traumas. But he also, as he said, had his Baltimore dreams. In that maritime city, a port on the, on, on, the, on the ocean, actually one of the greatest ports in America at that time. Um, and it was his place where he gained literacy and, and again and again gained literacy which was his most prized possession. Uh, one other quick thing about their, their youths, I mean, both of them, I mean, Lincoln, we know a lot about Lincoln's reading uh, from various works. What Lincoln read as a very young man, as a kid. But among the books Lincoln cherished was this book called The Columbian Orator. Uh, the school reader that Douglas discovers among his white playmates when he's about 11 and then begs and barters and finally gets his own copy when he's about 12 years old. This, this amazing book that was published first in 1797, uh, which was a, a huge collection, well, not that huge, but a collection of oratory over the ages from antiquity and the Enlightenment. But most importantly, the introduction to it was a manual on oratory, a how-to book on oratory, how to position your body and your shoulders and your neck and your hands, how to modulate your voice toward crescendos. and all. It's actually a kind of Aristotelian guide to oratory. I mean, I don't know that Douglas ever read Aristotle, but he read Caleb Bingham's The Columbian Order, but so did Lincoln. Mm -hmm. That book was among the cherished books Lincoln reads at New Salem when he's, what, a teenager? Mm -hmm. 20, 21. 20, yeah. Um, so it's interesting. They, they both uh, had, had read that and used that. And other kinds of, uh, uh, you know, moralistic literature that they may have early on read. Um, there are other things we can say about their but that's, origins. Yeah, but. that's a great, great introduction. So we're going to skip um, so we can get closer to uh, the, uh, the ultimate moment. Um, and my next set of images... Uh, shows Lincoln and Douglas in the 1850s. Um, speaking of parallel oratory, I found, you know, using Edna and David as my guides, uh, it's easy to find these wonderful parallels. Um, Lincoln says in 1858, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Douglas says, liberty and slavery cannot dwell in the United States in peaceful relations. Um, I don't know if Douglas even, if Lincoln knew about Douglas at this point, probably. Well, he will in the debates. Uh, Douglas says, it is pretty well settled to all that one or the other of these 
freedom or slavery, must go to the wall. The South must either give up slavery or the North must give up liberty. Lincoln says it will become all one thing or all the other, meaning the country. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it um, or its advocates will push it forward till it becomes alike lawful in all the states. And then in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, Stephen Douglas, the sitting Democratic senator who's running for a third term and uh, ill-advisedly allowed Lincoln to challenge him for debates that gave Lincoln a national reputation, even if he lost the Senate seat. Stephen Douglas, who by, I don't know what you'd say, by scholarly conjecture, dropped the second S in his name because he didn't want it to be the same as Frederick Douglass's. That's never really been proven, but it's an interesting story. Um, he invoked Frederick Douglass's name. Douglass would have loved to claim that. Yeah, which Douglass? <laughs> Frederick. Okay. Um, but Douglass becomes a subject in these debates. Yeah. Well, why don't we just talk about that for a minute? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, they're, they're debating throughout seven cities in Illinois, cities where they had not uh, done joint um, speeches before. And they're trying to win over the crowd. And so they're giving their perspective on slavery and its connection to the development of the country and where the country is going. And so Douglas is Stephen A. It's someone who was, uh, if not pro-slavery, certainly pro-South, and uh, very much anti-Black. And wherever, whenever he was in, well, throughout Illinois, he made a point consistently to say things that would get his audience to uh, come to his side by saying negative things about Black people. So to talk about Douglas in relation to an alleged relationship with Lincoln. The two had not met by that time. But to suggest that Lincoln and Douglas were friends, uh, he brought those things up to sort of get the audience to see Lincoln as someone who was pro-black. And we, we think of Illinois because it was uh, an ostensibly free state. We assumed that there is a kind of, um, if not a, a tolerance of, of black people uh, there wasn't. Uh, you have a lot of people in Southern Illinois, especially, who are coming from the South. And even people who are coming from the North are not necessarily pro-Black. And so he was very effective, Stephen A. was very effective in invoking the name of Frederick Douglass whenever he talked about uh, Lincoln being a Black Republican or someone who was very much supportive of the rights of African Americans. And of course, Lincoln countered by saying that he was not interested in uh, promoting the rights of African Americans. He just believed that they were entitled to whatever they had earned through their labor. There's a reason they called the southern half of Illinois Little Egypt and sometimes Central Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against Alabama. <clears throat> in fact, at one point during the debates in Illinois, Douglas trotted out this story. Oh, yeah, I saw Abe Lincoln riding around in a carriage with Fred Douglas. He always called him Fred. Fred right. Douglas hated being called Fred in public. Uh, but, yeah, he would make up these stories. Well, Lincoln rides around in carriages with Fred Douglas. It's interesting that's that all you had to say. It's, a, it's, a, it's a wedge issue. Exactly. It's like in 1864, 
during uh, Lincoln's second campaign, mm-hmm. jumping ahead, but just on this subject. You told us not to jump I know, ahead. That's I right. know, that's why. But it's because you raised a point. <laughs> that's true, go ahead. <laughs> so one of the anti-Lincoln cartoons of 1864 shows, heaven forbid, oh, yeah. a carriage with a yeah, yeah. white driver yeah. driving a black couple. Right. And this is like considered the height of humiliation for white supremacists that right. there could possibly, yeah. so anyway. Yeah, and he says Fred Douglas was in a carriage. Douglas says that in one of the debates. Mm-hmm. And, it is, and it is always Fred. So again, Douglas, the name being raised uh, in these consequential debates. We move to 1860 and here's a great pairing. They're almost confronting each other. Um, that's a debate we'd like to have had. Wouldn't that have yeah. been an interesting? Yeah, no, yes. Um, <laughs> could, could Douglas vote in 1860? And yes. so do we know who he voted for? Oh, yes, he could vote because he owned $250 worth of property in New York State. A black man had to own, a white man did not, a black man did. Right. And Douglas campaigned ferociously to eliminate that law uh, in 1860, and it lost. As a, on a referendum. Yes, he could vote. And the truth is, we're not sure. Yeah. Because in the 1850s, Douglas rode this roller coaster in terms of the Republican Party. In election years, presidential election years, he tended to support the Republicans, whoever the candidate was. Right, ultimately. And then in off years, he'd go back and hide in the Radical Abolition Party, which got three or four votes here or there. Uh, actually, got plenty of votes in a district that Garrett Smith lived in and got elected to Congress. So Douglas had that tendency then of not knowing what to do politically uh, with his vote, with his support. Uh, my guess is he probably voted for Lincoln in 1860 um, with, uh, you know, both eyes open. By the way, that referendum that took place that same year, mm-hmm. that Lincoln won in New York with, you know, 50 or so percent of the vote. Right. Uh, two other main candidates, not three, but two really competing, Breckenridge and Douglas. Right. Um, the black enfranchisement mm-hmm. resolution went down four to one. Exactly. 80%. Lots of people 20%. voted for Lincoln who also voted not exactly. to eliminate that property requirement for black voting rights. Let's talk for a second about both men, I think Douglas more seriously and consequentially, but both men were newspaper publishers. Uh, mm-hmm. Even during the campaign of 1860, Lincoln secretly owned a German-language newspaper published out of Springfield called the Staatseinzeiger, which he... Uh, I didn't know. Did you know that? <laughs> go back and look at Lincoln and the power of the press. I know. Yeah, well, I was busy. You were busy with this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so Lincoln buys, Lincoln rescues this... Owned a German-language newspaper? Yeah. Was that a good investment? <laughs> It depends on what his goal was. So he, I'll, I'll do a very quick rundown. Then we, you, you guys can talk about Douglas's monthly. So Lincoln learns that a, uh, uh, a publisher has relocated to Springfield to start his German, restart his German language paper in the state capital, except that he's in hock up to his ears. So his creditors seize the printing press and the fracture type, type hmm. right? And Lincoln learns about it. It'll cost $500 to get the press and the mm. type out of hock. Lincoln goes to the state committee and says, you should really do this because he'll be a Republican paper. And they say, this guy's no good. Uh, I, you know, um, he's, a, he's a bit of a charlatan. So Lincoln gives him the $500, writes out a contract, and says, 
keep this paper going until December 1860. <laughs> Guess what that means, right? The end of the election period. And um, uh, my only requirement is that you say nothing against the principles of the state Republican or national Republican platform. If you comply in December 1860, you can have the printing press, you can have everything. So for 13 or 14 what months- Paul. Man. What a Paul. For 14 months, Lincoln's friends who can read German, Lincoln takes German lessons, but he's a cut up in the class. So he was basically asked to leave the class. <laughs> Um, that was my next question. Did, did he read He German? could not. The only word we know he knew was Schneider because someone came to the class and said, I'm Schneider. And he said, that means Taylor. He knew that. <laughs> um, but that's about all we... So anyway, the paper was constantly being observed in the Republican, uh, English language Republican papers in Springfield and later credited with giving Lincoln a big uh, German, la German immigrant boost in the election of 1860 in Illinois. And uh, after the election, Lincoln made the, uh, the publisher consul to Vienna Woo. at 1500 a year, which was pretty private secretary earned that. Mm. And then, I'll just do one more anecdote, he asked the state legislature to buy up all the back copies of the Staatseinzeiger so that Dr. Canisius, the publisher, could have a little bit of a stipend to buy strudel in Vienna, I guess. <laughs> Um, Probably wine in Vienna. Yeah. Well, um, and then the paper dies. We have his contract. One is in Springfield. One is in the John Hay Library. Uh, each, and it's you know never be your own lawyer. But Lincoln was his own lawyer in this transaction. Now, okay, that's really a side story to say the least. By the way, because they bought up all the back copies, not one copy of this paper exists. No. They are all gone. And somewhere I know in Illinois. Oh, yeah. There's got to be a copy of the Staatsanzeiger. In case any of you have relatives, to have them have a look. It would be a very valuable relic. But let's talk about Douglas's series of newspapers that had such consequence. Well, he, he, has, he has three before the war. Yeah. I mean, before the war is over. Three different names to it. Right, yeah. exactly. So the first one, I guess, is the North Star. Mm -hmm. And he's... The paper's very important. People read in those days, believe it or not. And so it was very important. That that's one way to get your word out to the public. And uh, he had significant support from white readers. Uh, they were supporting him quite well. Um, his editorials, if you look at the papers now, they're absolutely extraordinary. You know exactly what's happening at any given moment. Uh, in the history of the country, especially during the early war years. And so I, I, I so much love to look at those primary sources. Uh, whenever I'm writing about Douglas, I use his exact words as much as possible because he was really, truly an exceptional writer. And so those newspapers chronicle what's happening they are um, a representation of what Douglas is feeling at the time. Uh, I don't know that Lincoln is actually reading mm -hmm. anything that Douglas is writing, but there are people who know Lincoln who are reading and who are letting him know who Douglas is and what he's saying. Uh, what kind of influence he has over Lincoln with what he's writing in the newspapers, I'm not so sure of, but he certainly is having an influence 
over the rest of the population. I agree. A mainstream, even an advanced Republican mainstream poll in Illinois cannot admit that he reads abolitionist papers, Mm -hmm. whether they're published by people of color or whites. Uh, That newspaper was Douglas's lifeblood. Uh, It was his reason to be. He said that many different ways, many different times. That I had that paper every week. It was a weekly, about the first 12 years, and then a monthly, the last roughly four years of its existence. 16 years he put out this paper. Now, it needs to be said, he founded that paper in 1847 with money donated to him by his British abolitionist friends, That's how he bought his first printing press. That's how he hired a printer. The first printing press he bought was used. It fell apart, et cetera. That paper also would not have survived without the assiduous editorial work of Julia Griffiths, his English friend, and her fundraising to keep it alive. But in that, just as Edna says, in that paper, Douglas, Douglas mastered about every genre of writing. He wrote millions of words. 1,200 pages of autobiography, thousands of speeches. And by the way, every major Douglas speech exists in a text. He wrote them first. He wasn't just the preacher who could blow out the lights off the top of his head. I mean, you could do that if you wanted. But the short-form political editorial is where he really found a declarative voice, and not just that florid 19th-century oratorical voice. And from the late 40s through the 50s, you can monitor the entire American political crisis over slavery from a radical abolitionist perspective through Douglass's paper. Name your moment, whether it's Fugitive Slave Rescues or it's the Fugitive Slave Act or it's the Kansas-Nebraska Act or it's Bleeding Kansas or you name it, or Dred Scott or on and on and on. There is one or more editorial. So when did it become Douglas's monthly? Uh, 59 or 60. I think it's 59. He converts to a monthly eventually, probably for cost reasons, also labor. Uh, He was trying to do this every week. And by the way, it was a family production. Mm -hmm. I mean, his three sons, uh, he taught them. But he makes it into an eponymous journal. I mean, he names it for himself at a certain point, which is probably good marketing. Probably, and also vanity, uh, you know, Frederick Douglass's paper, and then it was Douglass's monthly. (laughs) Yeah, this guy's nothing if not vain. I mean, look at it. Absolutely. Who else could be? (laughs) Is the story true that um, tourists, especially those who, let's say, in Niagara Falls, not terribly far from Rochester, one of the side trips was to go to Rochester and to check out whether a man of color could actually be running a newspaper? Uh, Is that apocryphal? I I don't doubt that it happened. There were gawkers around Douglas, especially from, especially after the war. He had a horrible problem with what we'd call celebrity. They called fame. I mean, um, being so recognizable, et cetera, et cetera. I I don't know any particular example of that. Uh, There were plenty of fugitive slaves who ended up on his doorstep Mm -hmm. and said, Is this where Frederick Douglass lives? Is this his printing office? Um, So I guess the first, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mark the first kind of confrontation uh, to be Douglass's reaction to Lincoln's first inaugural. And these are circa 1861 photographs around the time. Well, for Lincoln, shortly after he gives um, 
an inaugural that's been uh, widely quoted. Barack Obama quoted it extensively in his victory speech uh, in, uh, that seems so long ago, what is it, 2008, I guess. Um, Half a lifetime ago. Yeah. Um, Douglas doesn't like that first inaugural. Um, mm. tell, tell everybody why. Go ahead. Okay. Um, <laughs> Well, I like doing mop-up. This is good. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a batting practice pitch after this. All right, well, all right. <laughs> so by the time Lincoln is inaugurated, seven states have already seceded from the Union. So the nation's in crisis. Lincoln has to come in and try to heal things very quickly. And so he thinks he's going to be able to make a dent, at least, in this address. And so he takes a very conciliatory approach. He's telling the South, trying to reassure them he has no intention to touch slavery at all. He's not uh, legally able to do so, and he has no inclination to do so. So that's the first thing he's saying. And he's talking about, I think the thing that really bothered Douglas the most was the whole issue of the Fugitive yeah. uh, Slave Act. And he's hoping, okay, you've got seven states that have seceded from the Union. They're no longer considering themselves a part of the Union. And so Lincoln is saying, however, we're not going to interfere with your domestic institutions. And by the way, if you want to continue recovering your runaways, then we're going to enforce that law, as long as it's not going to impinge on the rights of free black people. And of course, we, we know that there are lots of times when free blacks are caught up in the Fugitive Slave Act and they are sent into slavery, sometimes when they had never been enslaved. Uh, and so I think that's what Douglas is most concerned about, the fact that here is the president who has the opportunity to do something about slavery because you've got these seven states that are supposedly out of the union and Lincoln is not willing to do anything at that point. So it's a matter of opportunity that Douglas thinks that Lincoln does not avail himself of. So before I... I turn it over to, to David. Just let me read a little bit from Douglas's Monthly. Some thought that we had in Mr. Lincoln the nerve and decision of Oliver Cromwell. Interesting. But the result shows that we merely have a continuation of the Pierces and Buchanans and that the Republican president bends the knee to slavery as readily as any of his infamous predecessors. Too tough? Or, I mean, No. Okay. Not at that moment, at least to Douglas. He's also pretty brutal to Lincoln about the inaugural journey. As Lincoln, you know, yes. comes through Baltimore, his old, his old uh, Although, hometown, he says now he knows what a fugitive slave feels like yeah. on the Underground Railroad. He calls Lincoln that. the, because the, he has to hide. You yeah. The stories about him hiding. In a train, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Douglas thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Lincoln had to hide like a fugitive, he yeah. said. But, but actually, back in Rochester, Douglas did go out and see Lincoln at the whistle stop when he was passing through Rochester on the way to Washington and commented on the historic weight of that. But look, the first inaugural to Douglas, right or wrong, was just way too much olive branch and not enough sword. Mm -hmm. um, he basically hated that speech. And there's a context here. Uh, this is obviously April of 1861, the secession winter has been a horrible time. Well, for the whole country, for everybody, terrible fear. Where's this going? Nobody knows. And it's four months. And it goes on for months. And Douglas, with all his experience, believes, with not, with, not without good reason, that the Republicans are probably gonna engineer some compromise with the South 
And there were all kinds of compromise measures in the air. What he, but he wasn't, too, he wasn't uh, part of any Republican network at that point. He's not inside any network of communication. He has no contact in Lincoln's circle. And he doesn't know what Lincoln's going to do. He expects a compromise. But the first inaugural to him... And by the way, Obama used the first inaugural in 08 for quite obvious reasons. It was Lincoln the healer. Yeah. Healer, healer, healer that he needed at that point. In 1861... Sorry, Douglas didn't want healing. He wanted all-out war against slavery. Make no mistake. So uh, the war, secession grows, uh, the war begins, and um, the abolitionists are impatient with Lincoln, to say the least, because he's not using the powers that he had to uh, create, if nothing else, an interruption of the domestic workforce in the Confederacy and additions to the Union, potential addition to the ranks of the Union Army. Uh, there is a mo- the first, mo- another moment of um, combat and conflict comes when Lincoln rejects early military initiatives toward emancipation. So we have General Fremont and General Hunter, um, and uh, Douglas, David, you, you quote Douglas as saying, Lincoln had humbled and crippled Fremont in the presence of his enemies. So how does Douglas advocate for action as we move, let's say, toward D.C. emancipation in 1862 and on, the pressure is building? You go first this time, David. Oh, <laughs> oh that's pressure. Um, uh, well, he wants a war against slavery. He wants a sanctioned war against slavery and therefore the South. Uh, the firing of Fremont uh, in fall of 61, he, uh, he hated it. Uh, Fremont, whatever Fremont really was, Fremont seemed to be an abolitionist general who's issuing emancipation proclamations of his own. Douglas thought, that's pretty good in Missouri. Uh, so at that po- and, and at that point, of course, the policy. What, bo- what bothered Douglas most in 61, 62 is the policy, or at least stated policy of the federal government, which was to return fugitive slaves. Uh, They called it technically denial of asylum, which meant if a fugitive slave entered Union lines, they were supposed to be returned, if possible, to their owners if the owner was loyal to the Union. Now, how in the world some line captain was to determine whether some slaveholder was loyal to the Union or not, God knows. But at one point in the fall of 61, Douglas called Lincoln the most powerful slave catcher in America. That's where this rhetorical relationship begins. Yeah. And it's not pretty. Edna, you write that in this period, Lincoln's approach to slavery was an assortment of floating ideas and incoherent policies. So... Explain. explain. Did I say that? That's you did. Good. It is good, isn't it? <laughs> we all like having our stuff read back to us. <laughs> you know, I, I think what's happening during what I meant, what ha- what's happening during that time is Lincoln is trying to find a way to get the union back together, and I do believe that in the early years, in the early months, everything the, the union. Preservation of the Union is driving everything. Preservation of the Union actually drives everything throughout the war. Uh, and so he's struggling to find the best approach to get to that end. Uh, and so he does make some missteps or 
at least he moves a little bit more slowly than perhaps he needed to. Uh, he's almost an obstructionist at times. Um, the Congress is doing certain things. Lincoln isn't always supporting mm -hmm. that as fully as he could. So with the first Confiscation Act and even the second Confiscation Act, there's not a lot that's happening that I see that's really moving the country toward getting this job done of, of um, doing something about slavery because he's really not interested at that point in doing something about slavery. He's interested in making sure that the union does not self-destruct. And I don't know that we can blame him for that tact. I mean, perhaps if he had moved more swiftly, emancipation would not have occurred when it did. There might have been some kind of compromise uh, with the South, with the Confederacy. We don't know. But certainly he was very cautious uh, and he did some things or didn't do some things that could cause us to question him now. Do you think some of the, this um, presentation, self-presentation as kind of a reluctant warrior, which is putting a, a positive spin on it, is all calculated to uh, toward the 1862 congressional and gubernatorial elections, that um, it'll be the first congressional elections ever held during a rebellion. Mm -hmm. um, everything he does, I mean, if he loses, it's going to be hard to lose the Senate because all the Democrats, all the pro-democratic states in the South have left the Senate in, in addition to the Union. But I, I think a lot of this is motivated by his political concerns. He's, he will be helpless. Anti-slavery will be unsuccessful unless he maintains his majorities. So I, that's my spin, a little yeah, th bit. Th that may be part of it, but I, I think he really hasn't gotten there yet. I don't think he really is interested until the summer of 62 okay. in doing something about slavery. And he's interested at that time because he does understand that the Confederacy has an advantage in the enslaved labor force that it has. And so then he moves. And once he does decide to move, however, I believe that he recognized how important that decision was. And so I would like to think that the shaking hand came not just because he was um, shaking hands with Ralph uh, because it was New Year's uh, Day, but because it dawned on him at that moment how momentous mm. that was. And it doesn't necessarily mean that he was changing his mind, but it did mean that he understood, he recognized how extraordinary that particular moment was. And our two fellows, Harold, have vastly different job descriptions. <laughs> uh, Douglas can't even know yet how Lincoln's anti-slavery bones may have been stirring in him. He can't know that. He doesn't know that. He, and, and even if he had the inkling, he has no idea whether to trust it. And his job is to try rhetorically with the only power he has, which is his voice and his pen, to move this war toward an Armageddon to destroy slavery. And it's not happening. Except finally in the spring of 62, Lincoln's article of war, Lincoln's suggestion to Congress, then his actual signing of the Second Confiscation Act, which was held in abeyance for mm -hmm. a while. What do you trust is always this question. And then there's the war. 
<laughs> if the union keeps losing battles, uh, bets are off. And, and it's a t if it, just think about it for a moment. It's a terrible set of strains for a Douglas. He lives in Rochester, New York. He's getting this newspaper out every month. He's out on the road speaking constantly all over the North, everywhere he can go. And in these years, he's not getting paid for these lectures much at all. And he's got a huge family at home. And, and he's, he's trying to, sh to shape policy with his voice. And really, the policymakers aren't listening. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he just does not know whether he can trust these Republicans, and he still doesn't know until September 22nd. So, and even then he's not sure. Right. And to advance the story a bit, um, summer of 62, which both of you have alluded to. So as we know now, but Douglas did not know, Lincoln decided by July that he was going to issue this executive order. He reads it to his cabinet on July 22nd. Uh, 1862, the cabinet, even the abolitionists say, oh my goodness, you can't do this. Yeah. Um, you lose the election. The, 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 there's a better way to do it, says Salmon Chase. And Seward says, it'll be seen as a last shriek on the retreat because of all our battlefield setbacks. So Lincoln tables it. And Lee's invading the North. Lee's, in, uh, yeah, about to invade the North. Mm -hmm. um, so for two months, uh, there was a document being worked on by Lincoln, being edited. Douglas may know that toward the end when I think the story gets out a bit in, uh, uh, in, in early September after Labor Day is when the news is focused again. But um, for the next two months, Lincoln makes some extraordinary public relations decisions, which we now look back at with some horror, and Douglas looked at with horror at the time. He writes his famous letter to Horace Greeley, the editor of the New York Tribune, which we had on display here in the Lincoln in New York exhibition, saying my paramount object is to save the Union. What I do about slavery or what I forbear about slavery, I do to save the Union, emphasizing in public what, what Edna is saying. And then in August, uh, around the same time, the most, probably the, the, the cruelest and most ill-advised of Lincoln's public relations moves. Now, why is he doing this? I think he's doing it because, again, he's got an election coming up. He is petrified that he will lose white voting public opinion. He knows he's going to issue this order. He's scared, even in, in August. So he hosts a, a group of free African-Americans at the White House, one of the great good news, bad news stories in American history, because a group of free African-Americans had never been welcomed to the White House before. But as the meeting begins, Lincoln emerges with an Associated Press stenographer at his side, which might have seemed less than cordial. And then he proceeds to lecture his visitors and say, basically, you're the reason we have a war. Your presence in society. Without your people, this yeah. war would not have. Um, and um, it is better for us both to be separated, uh, he says. And he's got a colonization plan. He's got a Central American plan. There's always Africa. Go, don't say anything now. Go back to your homes, to your churches. Let me know soon what you think. Um, Douglas writes, among other things, one of the toughest editorials Lincoln has ever, editorial attacks Lincoln ever endured. Every man who has a brain in his head, even Mr. Lincoln, <laughs> must know that in many places, 
Distinct races live peaceably together in the enjoyment of civil rights. Yet he says to the colored people, I don't like you. You must clear out of the country. It is not slaves causing the war. It is slavery. Um, I brought a note card. Good. Um, He also said, (laughs) he he likened Lincoln's logic. I always have to look this up because I never remember it exactly. He likened Lincoln's logic to, quote, a horse thief pleading that the existence of the horse is the apology for his theft, (laughs) or a highwayman contending that the money in the traveler's pocket is the sole cause of the robbery. By the way, Lincoln That's had pretty used, good metaphor. Lincoln, had, metaphor. Lincoln really? used the same metaphor at Cooper Union about That's a right. highwayman. That's right. I That's always right. wondered whether Douglas gave him a little extra tweak or a zet. Well, he was nothing York if not an ironist. He might have... He he, he he he, well, Douglas had read Lincoln, even it, if Lincoln exactly. hadn't read Douglas. So I, it's just, I think he did it all. It was, it was Lincoln's worst racial moment, as you just said. I'm, yeah. I'm glad you laid that out. We didn't have to. <laughs> right. Um, but is it for public consumption or is it real? That's always been the question. It's still the, the colonization question. thing was real. Yes. And, and so he may have invited them there to, uh, and with the sonographer there, to make sure that the American people recognized what was about to come. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that he didn't believe what he was saying. I suspect he did, because we know that after this period, colonization does occur. Mm. People do go to Ilevash or Cow Island. How, how, how ironic, you know, that you're sending, you know. And Lincoln and the, and the people. federal government funds the first. Yes, exactly. Watch. And so if it was just about preparing Americans for emancipation and there was no colonization, then I could, I could see it. But I think it's, it's a two-pronged thing. He is preparing America for what he's about to do, but he's also preparing African-Americans for what he called voluntary deportation. Right. And one quick thing uh, on the side to add, it's the colonization issue here, which means removal from the country, that drove Douglas nuts. Nothing animated his anger like that issue. And especially when Montgomery Blair in Lincoln's cabinet was designated to try to recruit Douglas to be, in effect, the colonization czar for the federal government. And one of the most biting, angry, savage letters Douglas ever wrote was a long letter to Montgomery Blair telling him where he could put the offer to be the colonization czar. (laughs) Because to Douglas, that meant... So, black freedom is now maybe possible because of this war, because of secession, and you're just going to remove us? No. It's like, it's like our birthright might actually come true, and right then you no. deny it. Right. So that, we, now we do so know. That's where Douglas didn't care what Lincoln thought. He was reacting to the reality. We do know that there were black men and women who believed that their fortune lay someplace uh, outside of the there country. There were people. But they didn't Even call Douglas' that, his own son and daughter. Absolutely. But they didn't call that colonization. They called that immigration. Man. So there were immigration societies that were headed by black people, but they didn't see it as being forced out. In those instances, they said, this is our decision. Mm-hmm. No one's telling us we should leave. 
we're deciding right. that we want to leave. So it's very different. So one of the, one of the problems with having a monthly newspaper, of course, is that you got to wait a month. <laughs> yeah. By the time he issues his condemnation, right. September twenty second, a couple of weeks after the Suddenly. comes out, the Emancipation comes out, the preliminary proclamation. Douglas at first is exuberant, and then he thinks about it and and decides that it kindled no enthusiasm, and especially. Wright is upset that there's a hundred days notice between the preliminary and the final, that Lincoln extends one more olive branch of status quo antebellum world. If you put down your arms, rejoin the Union, whether or not he thought it was possible, then I will reverse this edict. I won't sign it. And Douglas says um, uh, it made uh, freedom future and conditional, not present an absolute. Lincoln is moving like a slave under the lash. Mm-hmm. Um, and keep in mind as well that that preliminary proclamation has a clause in it about colonization. Yes. So the final one does not. But right. Douglas could not have been very pleased. It had that money that to be allocated for yes. colonization in the preliminary, not in the final. So what? Douglas is going back and forth on this, and why not? It's a it's a fraught moment for an African-American leader, I suppose. Where do you go? Whom do you support? What do you suggest? Do you lay low and let this play out? Do you keep pressure, the pressure on? Um, the, um, Douglas begins publicly saying that he doesn't think Lincoln will move back. Mm-hmm. How does he get convinced? Because he hasn't yet met him. I think that's a rhetorical position at that point. He needs to say that because he has an obligation of hope. He has, it, this was always kind of Douglas's approach, especially with black audiences or even white abolitionist audiences. He felt a responsibility of hope. And this preliminary proclamation was extraordinary in, in its new hope. Uh, he needs to say that. Uh, and then he probably put his head on the pillow at night thinking, God, I hope it's true. <laughs> you know, um, and that's my feeling. So January 1st comes, the hand trembles for many reasons, the signature is affixed, Douglas writes, we shout for joy that this day has finally come, and then um, comes the the reckoning, and so, you know, I I like to say that there are two documents at this moment, there's the... Both of of them in the New York Historical Society, the Leland Boker copy of the Emancipation Proclamation, which... uh, uh, was not a bestseller in its day. I wish there were more $5 copies around that they didn't sell out in Philadelphia. And Douglas becomes not the colonization CEO, but the recruitment CEO. Um, and finally, finally, um, and he gives up his newspaper, right? Yes. Later that year. Yeah, right. Um, so black recruitment begins. There's a congressional act in March 1863, and they are not, African-American recruits are not paid the same rate as white soldiers. They have to pay for their own uniforms, whereas white soldiers have a bonus for buying their own uniforms. It's not exactly the most equitable situation. Douglas comes to Washington, and there is the first meeting. This is a 20th century mural by an African-American artist, named William Edward Scott. It's really all we have, uh, but it's, it's wonderful. And it is a monumental meeting, isn't it? Douglas 
is escorted past a group of people, I'm sure they were all white, who were waiting on the stairway to see Abraham Lincoln as he heads toward the office unobstructed and uh, cutting the line, as we would say today. You, you hear mutterings of the N-word because a person of color is going ahead of the white people. And um, Always a humiliation before the recognition. Yeah. And Douglas comes. Thousands of yeah. times. He went. And he comes into the office, and there's Lincoln in his carpet slippers. And he's introduced, and Lincoln says, I know who you are, Mr. Douglas, and what happens next? It has to be one of the great scenes which no dramatist has tried to recreate. There's a screenwriter working on it right now. Okay. <laughs> I hope. What happens at the meeting? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> well, he certainly, you know, we, we need to put it in context. Douglas is still stinging from the fact that he never got his commission to, to uh, serve to recruit these, these black soldiers. But he continues to work on behalf of these soldiers. And so he's telling Lincoln, these people are sacrificing themselves, they're putting their lives on the line, and they're getting $7 uh, a month instead of the 13 that white men are getting. Uh, and Lincoln's response is, well, we're doing the best we can. Uh, pretty much you're lucky that there are black men, uh, that we're allowing black men to serve because there's so many people in the country who don't want that. So we're taking a chance. And he's right, they were. Uh, lots of, of uh, Americans did not want black men serving uh, in the war. And so Lincoln tells him, though, be patient. This will come. They will eventually get uh, the same pay. But for right now, there's not much that we can do about it. That's the first time Douglas set foot in Washington, D.C., for one thing. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, and he went all on his own. He had no invitation. As you say, he got in line. It's August 1863 uh, to protest discriminations. And Battery Wagner has already happened. I mean, yeah. African-American oh, yeah. troops, including his own son, have his been son thrust Lewis into this His son Lewis has already battle. been shipped to New York City to convalesce from a horrible wound to the groin and almost died. And Douglas will go immediately back to New York to be at his son's bedside. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's not an easy meeting. And Douglas came away basically saying, like diplomats say, we had a good exchange of ideas, which means they didn't agree. But I do think he was awed by Lincoln. Because he writes, and he says publicly, I felt big there. I mean, it's like a kid would say that. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt big there with Lincoln. Lincoln obviously was, according to Douglas, was not condescending, did not just hurry him out of the office, although it wasn't a long meeting. The second meeting's longer. But it was respectful. But Lincoln did say, basically, you ought to be grateful. Mm -hmm. He says he's the, he was the first great man that I talked with in the United States freely, who in no single instance reminded me of the difference between himself and myself. Yeah. The difference in color. And that had to mean he met that's... some other formidable white people. That's a remarkable thing to say. Uh, yeah, it was also rhetorically useful. Yeah, he, he wrote it later. So. He did write it later. Yeah. But anyway, uh, he walked away from there not pleased with the results, but he had just met the president, and the president knows who he is now. This is August of 63. I mean, the war is in abeyance. The war is in this horrible 
situation. It's post-Vicksburg, post-Gettysburg, which are victories for the Union, but it's still in a horrible state. And no one knows where this is going. Well, it's only halfway. Yes. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's such a big context to this. I will, I'll just want to add one thing to go back to the Emancipation Proclamation, which authorizes the recruiting of black soldiers. There are reasons Douglas and others would support this now. It did not call for colonization, the final proclamation, and it called, it, it basically ordered the recruitment of black soldiers. And Douglas, after the proclamation, goes back to Bo uh, Rochester after the big celebration in Boston and did what he always did. He went to his desk and wrote a new speech. Douglas is one of those people, like perhaps a lot of you, who didn't know what he thought until he went to his desk to write it down. And he wrote a speech called The Proclamation and the Negro Army. And he's on the road by the third week of January, only three weeks after the proclamation, giving that speech all across the North. And in that speech, among, I mean, as usual, it was two hours. But in that speech, he says, this proclamation frees all of us. It frees the Confederate soldier. It frees the slaveholder. It frees the white Union soldier. It frees black people. It frees Abraham Lincoln. It frees all of us. In other words, he's saying, this potentially frees the country from its history. It's, 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 it's a brilliant, brave statement about a proclamation that is still very new and no one knows quite where this is going. And then in the, and then in the men of colored arms, you know, it's, it's fascinating when you put those two up together because the proclamation is, of course, this legalistic right. executive order meant to be kind of boring, even though it's terribly important. Men of Colored Arms is a radical manifesto. Right. I, I didn't uh, put propaganda. it up here. I wanted people to see the headlines. Oh, absolutely. The actual document oh, is rousing. Man, Fight it for is your a freedom. war propaganda document. And, and that's the point. <laughs> Fight for your freedom. He's not so terribly interested in recruiting black men to save the union. Right. He understands that once black, and he says it, once black men don the union blue and shoulder a gun, they have the right to ask for full citizenship. So he's already looking beyond yeah. just the end of slavery. But he's a great US recruiting Army. agent. He says, freedom won without us will not be worth what freedom yes. will be worth if we fight Absolutely. ourselves. I want to get, before I turn to audience questions, I want to just talk about the last two meetings. Um, they're important and they're post-emancipation, but Lincoln is afraid he's going to lose the 1864 election in a period when he's really down, um, um, telling his, you know, making his cabinet sign documents uh, about cooperating with the Democratic eventual winner, George McClellan, when he's telling the editor of the New York Times to go ahead and negotiate with Jefferson Davis if you can find him. He also develops a, a backup plan about enforcing emancipation while the federal government can with Frederick Douglass. Let's just briefly talk about that. Meeting. Well, you know, Douglass and that photo, I, they're all great photos, but you might think Douglass is just unperturbable or imperturbable, if that's a word. But when he meets Lincoln the second time, August 64, it's at Lincoln's invitation. Right. Lincoln needs him. Lincoln rightfully believes there's a good chance he's not going to get reelected. The war weariness in at the that heart moment it's is the horrible. The stalemate in Virginia. And it's only a, a week from Sherman taking exactly. I, yeah. Well, that makes all the difference. Yeah. But what is it? Sixty-five thousand casualties, dead, wounded, and missing in the summer of '65 alone. The North. Four. Four. Sixty-four. Six, sorry. 
the North is sick of the war. Calls Douglas to the White House, looks him in the eye, and asks him to be the chief agent of a scheme to funnel as many slaves as possible out of the Upper South before Election Day. Before Inauguration Day. I thought it was before November. Uh, I think it's after. Oh, that's right, because of four-month yeah. interregnum. Four yeah. All this time. Anyway, I may lose this election, so help me create this scheme that will damage slavery as much as possible, get as many black folk behind union lines and some legal definition of freedom before McClellan and the Democrats engineer a, a negotiated peace or whatever they're going to do. And reverse the executive order. Which reverse is, emancipation. Yeah. Just imagine this as it happened. And I don't know exactly what Douglas thought, of course, but I, I know his reaction was basically something like, sure. <laughs> and he did ask, how am I supposed to do this? All Lincoln had was, oh, the War Department will help you. Uh-huh. He goes back to Rochester. It's only about 10 days. And he starts firing out telegrams and letters to abolitionists and agents and friends. And he's, we're going to do this, I think. I don't know how. <laughs> and then comes the fall of Atlanta, September 2nd, 3rd, which was maybe the biggest turning point in the war in terms of morale. And then Sheridan begins to move down the Shenandoah Valley. Farragut had just taken Mobile Bay in the largest naval battle of the war. The war had really turned. Douglas gets saved by history. But he writes a plan. He writes a long plan to oh, Lincoln. Yeah. 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 A bounty plan. He was going to hire uniformed yeah, African-American yeah. bounty hunters to find. He's been asked to enact John Brown's so-called subterranean passageway from slavery by Lincoln. But, but isn't there another <clears throat> reason for this meeting as well? Douglas is really criticizing Lincoln during this period. And so is Lincoln not sort of bringing him in to give him something to do Malifying. other than criticize him? <laughs> Quiet so, him down. Yeah, and, and so he's saying, you know, I may lose this thing. And so he's telling Douglas, just shut up, you know? <laughs> Get on with the business, you know, that you're interested in, but stop criticizing me so much. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's a moment, I'm just to throw in my opinion, where Lincoln imagines himself a liberator and wants to execute the document and wants to see as many people <laughs> liberated as possible before it's reversed. He can do both. How, what the legal status of free people is going to be mm -hmm. after a Democrat becomes president, I don't think he can calculate. And we should It'll just go add, to the court, but mm -hmm. the court's not even, fun Supreme Court's not functioning. We should just add, too, that that election campaign by the Democrats, I always tell my students, was the most racist in American history until the next one. Because 68 was really worse. They, the Democrats practiced classic wedge politics. They painted the Republicans as the party of black freedom and emancipation. Right. They were now. They were. They were the party of emancipation. And they started to have to kind of dance around it and dance away from it. And Lincoln, uh, Douglas dearly wanted to go campaign for Lincoln. And they wouldn't let him. Yeah. They this wouldn't let that, that greatest of black spokesmen out there on the stump. This museum has... A, an incredible collection of documents, of uh, images that relate to the racist campaign in New York. Oh, yeah. Rumors that there had been miscegenation dance, the miscegenation yeah. ball. Oh, Lord. They called Lincoln uh, Abraham Africanus I. Right. Implying that he was black, of course. So They didn't question his birth certificate, though. <laughs> so far as I know. Maybe they did. Try yeah. and find it, by the way. Oh, oh nice. It doesn't... 
final meeting, um, March 4th, 1865. I don't know if Douglas, I don't know if this is exactly 65. Douglas was photographed more often than Lincoln. Um, this is, for Lincoln, this is February 5th, 1865. So inauguration day, Douglas is in a, an integrated crowd. Lots of uh, USCT troops in the crowd. Douglas was there. Lincoln gives his speech. We remember it as the malice toward none speech. Douglas remembers it as the speech where Lincoln said, if every drop of blood drawn with a lash has to be repaid. Douglas liked the long He liked the long sentence. He didn't care about that. He says it's the greatest sentence ever. Then he comes to the White House for the post-inaugural reception. And uh, there's a scene for us. I hope the screenplay, the anonymous screenplay writer is including this scene. His name is Kevin Wilmot. He's working as we speak. Okay. He should be here, not working as we speak. No, he needs to to be working. All right, all right. (laughs) Douglas... It's not exactly welcomed at the White House. What happens? Yeah, he, so he's there. He's trying to get in. And he's actually in the company of a woman. Do you know who that is? Yeah, it's a woman from Philadelphia named, oh, God. Go ahead. I'll look it up. Okay, great, great. Uh, um, so he's trying Robinson? to get in. No, go ahead. Uh, Let's say Dorsey or something like Dorsey, that. Dorsey, that's it. It is Dorsey. You got it. Okay. Oh, so my brain isn't totally no, no, okay. good. Okay, wonderful. Hey, you know. so, so he's he wants to get in. Uh, the, the guards are not allowing him to come in. He gets a message to Lincoln that he's outside. Someone comes to the door and recognizes him. He sends the message to Lincoln that he wants to enter. Lincoln tells them to let him in. Uh, he meets Lincoln. Lincoln greets him very cordially and asks him. By the way, he, he cuts the line one more time because Lincoln <laughs> well, of course, is he the head of a receiving line. Well, he, he, Lincoln talks to him outside of the line of procession. Right. Yeah. Well, he actually said something about he had to walk over a plank to get in a side door. Or yeah. Something. Anyway, go exactly. ahead. Exactly. Because they were trying to usher him out. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so Lincoln does ask him, what did he think of uh, the address? And Douglas says it was a sacred effort. I believe yeah. those are the it's words that word. he uses. And he is sincere about what he feels about the address, and rightly so. You know, everybody talks about the Gettysburg Address. It's that second inaugural address that is truly extraordinary. I think the one moment I'd like to go back to before Douglas issues that compliment for the ages. So there is a receiving line. Lincoln's on the receiving line, and he (coughs) sees Douglas being ushered in by dubious guards and others, and he says to an all-white crowd, there is my friend Douglas. Douglas, there's no one whose opinion I respect more than yours. Um, Enough about you, let's talk about me. What did you think of my speech? But still, (laughs) but still, I think that's a remarkable moment in American history. And we do have another witness of what he said there. Isn't that just Douglas's telling? Right. Um, Anyway, yeah, it is. Uh, Right in the... I suppose that's the East Room where that happened. Yeah, uh, it is. Uh, and 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 again, it is. It shows us these men started in very different places, but by this time, I mean the way I like to put it, for what it's worth, is that they were now basically speaking from the same script. They didn't start with the same script at all. But by now, uh, they are talking about emancipation as the re- in the second inaugural as the regeneration of a new United States, a new republic, a new nation, a new constitution. Lincoln isn't going to live to see it. Um, 
they're basically on the same script. Now, if Lincoln lives, who knows where this script goes? Right. We'll never know. Was, was Douglas, as the uh, Spielberg movie suggests, in the gallery of the House of Representatives when they vote on no. the 13th Amendment? No, 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 no. His son was. No, the, the, no that's implying that's, that's his son. Oh, okay. It was his son, Charles, who writes a letter to his father and says, Father, the, it's an incredible letter. Father, this was your day. I wish you had been. Had, had Douglas done anything or was he also kept in the in the background in that campaign he wasn't inside yet the republican party machinations much at all he support 13th amendment was easy to support 14th and 15th not as easy right but But in the 13th i mean most of the campaign is as the 1860-61 congressional compromise involved a lot of lame ducks yeah the the Interestingly, the 13th Amendment again involves lame ducks, and of course, a lot of them are Democrats who are leaving office. So I guess Douglas would not. Easy to vote. Easy to vote, especially if there's a, a conscience when you're a lame duck. Or especially if there's a federal job on the other end. Oh, so I've been a very bad manager of time. May, so, may I, oh, may of I course. Very I'm going to show one in, more In terms parent. of Douglas's perspective on the 13th Amendment, it seems that, well, when Garrison and crew are attempting to uh, just abandon the, uh, the abolitionist movement, anti-slavery societies, Douglas right. is saying, no, the fight is not over. Even with the passage of the 13th Amendment, we don't have full citizenship. Right. So the struggle continues. So it seems that by the time the 13th Amendment was being um, ratified, Douglas was already out there pushing for full citizenship. And he constantly says slavery and its ideology will always come back. He argued his words, slavery never died honestly. Yes, right. Which means it died in war. It didn't die because yeah. people voted for it. Right. So I'm, I think we have about 15 minutes for some of these really good questions. Um, let me start with this. As he became a more prominent speaker, uh, did Frederick Douglass ever worry about being returned to the South under the fugitive slave law? Oh, yes. <laughs> for nine years, he was a fugitive slave. I mean, uh, and, and his friends worried about it, maybe more than he did. And, and leaves the country at one point, rightly so, because he was implicated. And does not come back from England until his British friends purchased his freedom and delivered him the papers. This is after John Brown. No, before John. Well, what about when he leaves? He leaves after John Brown. Well, oh, it's even more dangerous yeah. then. It's not because he's a fugitive slave. It's because he could be arrested and hanged as an accomplice to John Brown's raid, which he was. Both Douglas and Lincoln were fervent readers of Robert Burns. <laughs> Can you tell us what made Burns attractive to each of them? <laughs> Douglas was a fanatic for Robert Burns. Love it, like it or not, I'm sorry. He made a pilgrimage to Ayr. He met Burns' daughter. Uh, he loved the English Romantic poets. He, I think he loved the language, for one thing. Douglas was just a lover of language, whether it's Shakespeare or Dickens or Burns. But he probably loved the romance of it. And unfortunately, Julia Griffiths named one of the poems she read to him late at night when he was ill. She shouldn't have named that poem because now we know what it says. Uh, he loved romantic poetry, the English romantics. Uh, I think he also was attracted to Burns as this, this poor boy figure symbol of democracy. Yeah, I think that's what Lincoln... In, in the British uh, lore, or Scottish lore. 
It's a good thing Burns never took that job he was offered on a slave plantation in Jamaica. It would have ruined the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. um, did Douglas believe the Confederacy was capable of being reintegrated into the Union as fervently as Lincoln did? That's a good reconstruction question. Hardly. Yeah. Douglas certainly understood that even though the Confederacy had lost, there would be a struggle. I mean, as long as you allowed the same people who took their states into um, secession, if you allowed them to stay in power, it's going to be very difficult to bring them back in without expecting there to be some problems. Uh, and he certainly recognized that there would be problems for African Americans, and he was right. I think Lincoln recognized that there could be some problems. And he was willing, he said, to step in, you know, to make sure that things didn't get too bad. But Douglas really understood what it meant because Douglas had lived under them. And uh, he certainly was way ahead of Lincoln in terms of recognizing what the problems would be. Douglas wanted healing, but never without the justice to go with it. He once called the Confederacy, he said the Confederacy preferred to be a large part of nothing than a small part of something. He never trusted slaveholders even after slavery ended. So um, I'm gonna ask a question based on an image. In 1865, uh, Frederick Douglass in a eulogy said that uh, Abraham Lincoln was the black man's president at the unveiling of this uh, now politically incorrect uh, statue in Washington, funded entirely by free people of color, by the way. Uh, it's by a white sculptor, Thomas Ball. Uh, at the dedication, Frederick Douglass said Lincoln was the white man's president, that African Americans were his stepchildren, but he also said raise high his monuments. It's a, an interesting evolution. What do you think accounts for it, and where was Douglass in, in terms of his regard or questioning of Lincoln 11 years. This is the 11th anniversary of the assassination. A lot of water had run under that bridge between those, those two dates. Uh, I, I think in 1865, Douglas really was optimistic that things would change. And by the time he's doing that speech at the dedication, he recognizes that it's going to be much tougher than that because black people have lost ground. There, there is the passage of the 13th Amendment and the 14th and 15th, but by this period, their rights are being eroded. And so I think what's going on in that speech is not, it's not really about Lincoln as much as it is about reminding the white men present who were very prominent people in the country. President so, Grant was Yes, there. yes. So reminding the whole government them, was there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So reminding them that a promise was made in issuing the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, because that's the way black people saw it. It was a promise of much more than just freedom. And so Douglas is saying, okay, this great man that you hold up uh, in great regard has given us this promise. It is your responsibility to make sure that it occurs. And what prescience, this is the year that Reconstruction will end. Uh, mm -hmm. just a few months after this speech. And the nation is about to have the centennial celebration in Philadelphia. Uh, this is April 1876, that speech. The, Douglas is the orator of the day. Grant pulls the cord to unveil this remarkable statue, whatever we think of it now. 
But that speech was all about reconstruction. It's a warning <laughs> to Grant, the cabinet, the Congress, and the Supreme Court, which are all in front of him. And, and no black speaker had ever had that audience, that they are losing reconstruction. It's the second greatest speech of Douglas's life. Fourth of July speech, yeah. without question number one. But this speech is a brilliant piece of rhetoric for the reason that it is really two speeches. It's in the first part that he says, my white fellow Americans, you are Abraham Lincoln's children, I and my people are his stepchildren. And he, and he repeats the stepchildren three times as a refrain. And in the middle of the speech, there's a pause. And he basically says, but under his rule and in due time, emancipation came as Abraham Lincoln designed it and probably only could have. In the first speech, he's saying, he was not our president. He was against us. In the second half, he's saying, you know, Buck Freedom had to come the way he brought it. Both are true. It, it's a deadly honest speech at a ceremonial occasion. He could have done the throwaway. Lincoln was a great man, United States, rah, rah. Reconstruction's got a few problems, folks. And then just gone and sat down, but he didn't. Uh, and I looked in vain to find out what Grant's response to that speech was. I couldn't find anything in his papers. Grant may have taken a nap or something. <laughs> <laughs> it is remarkable that he said not a word that day. I know. Yeah. Um, we have time for one more question, anyway, from the audience. Um, and I'll go back to uh, our final standoff here. Um, did Lincoln and Douglas's religious beliefs play a significant role in shaping their views on Slavery and abolition. Yes, in both cases. They are both serious readers and serious users of biblical story and metaphor, as anyone who's studied Lincoln knows. And it's one of the central themes of my book on Douglas. Douglas was so steeped in the Old Testament in particular, the whole Bible, but particularly the Old Testament. Um... Douglas's faith is less my concern, his actual faith. It's not easy to know. But his use of biblical story, uh, symbol, metaphor, and especially the Hebrew prophets, is all over his rhetoric. He saw America, he's hardly alone in this, he saw America as a place with some kind of destiny on some kind of trajectory of history somehow designed by the divine. Uh, it's never easy to exactly see it, but it's, it's there. Uh, he quoted Isaiah more times than you could almost imagine. It gave him his apocalyptic sense of history, the expectation of an, of an Armageddon of some kind. Uh, he believed the temple in Jerusalem, meaning in this case, the United States, had to be destroyed in order to be reinvented. He knew what story to put this in. He just wanted it to happen that way. <laughs> um, so in Douglas's case, there's no question his religion, his religion mattered all over his worldview, all over his rhetoric. And, you know, Lincoln, look at the second inaugural. Yeah, and the house divided. I mean, he <sighs> quotes scripture throughout yeah. his presidency and becomes more of a religious fatalist as the war goes on. And right. I think... Yeah. is increasingly unwilling to accept sole responsibility for the carnage. He suddenly becomes God's war. I see uh, Dale Gregory looming, so I will end with three quick quotes, if I may. One is uh, from uh, Frederick Douglass, and I think David has already paraphrased it, from 1876. Though the Union, and this 
reinforces what Edna said earlier. Though the union was more to him, this is Douglas on Lincoln, than our freedom and our future, under his wise and beneficent rule, we saw ourselves gradually lifted from the depths of slavery to the heights of liberty and manhood. And then Lincoln, in December 1862, between the preliminary and the um, final emancipation, in a State of the Union message in which he talked about colonization, uh, he still said, in giving freedom to the slave, we give freedom to the free, honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve, which is an echo of what Douglas is saying about freeing everyone. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. And my final quote is um, of Edna Medford, because it's something we have not discussed in full detail uh, as we've discussed two great men and their impact on freedom. But Edna reminds us in her book uh, about Lincoln and the emancipation, Lincoln's decree promised freedom. African-Americans defined what that meant. This has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.